Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way here on the Tom Hartman Program. We were uh, brainstorming uh, new names for the weekdays the other day, just because it's the Trump era, right? So it'd be Martial Law Monday, Toxic Tuesday, Worst Case Scenario Wednesday, Thought Controlled Thursdays, and Effed Up Fridays. Eh, I don't know. Today is the, I believe, 70th anniversary. No, it's got to be more than that. 75th anniversary. Thank you, Sean. Of Franklin Roosevelt rolling out his second Bill of Rights, his new Bill of Rights, which includes, it's amazing to think about this. 75 years ago today, the President of the United States said that education for all, including college education, should be a right and not a privilege. Health care for all should be a right and not a privilege. And a job that pays well enough that you can actually raise a family without going into debt should be a right and not a privilege. And that all of these rights should be guaranteed by virtue of government action. And, you know, for 75 years, billionaires and right-wingers have been fighting this tooth and nail. And so far have uh, held it off. There's a, a number of things in the news, too. I just want to bring you up to date on a few things here, and then we'll pick up your phone calls. A uh, historian from Yale University, Timothy Snyder, this was almost a year ago, back in May of 2017, well, half a year ago. Timothy Snyder is the author of Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, and his new book on tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Um, he's, a, an, as I said, an award-winning historian. And Chauncey DeVega interviewed him for Salon uh, Magazine at salon.com and uh, you, you can read this I mean it's, it's pretty remarkable he, he said we're still this is what this historian I mean you know he has watched the rise of populist fascists all around the world and written about them and he said we're still at the stage here in the United States where protest is not illegal we're still at the stage where protest is not lethal now think about that for a minute you know if you lived in Egypt or Turkey or Brazil, in, in uh, <laughs> large chunks of the Middle East, in fact, the vast majority of the Middle East, if you try to protest, you could die. 
the Philippines, Duterte kills his political opponents, calls them drug, drug users. He goes on to say that you have to accept that there is a time frame. Nobody, nobody can be sure how long this particular regime change with Trump will take, but there is a clock, and the clock really is ticking. It's three years on the outside, probably a year, before Trump throws or stages a coup and overthrows democracy. Could the state of emergency associated with the wall be something that, I mean, something that these guys gamed out in advance, that they planned this, that this is actually part of a plan for a coup? John Favreau, the, uh, the host of, of um, Pod Save America, a former Obama speechwriter, he tweeted out yesterday, he says, I'm pumped for the next pres Democratic president to use emergency powers for a Green New Deal to resolve the climate emergency, Medicare for all to resolve the public health emergency. By the way, those, those two emergencies are actually killing people. And the new Voting Rights Act, a democracy emergency. Interesting. I guess that's making lemonade out of lemons, but, you know, do you think? William Barr, this is a BFD. William Barr is the, uh, the gentleman that Donald Trump wants to make his attorney general. William Barr was attorney general once before. He was attorney general during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. George H.W. Bush had been part of the Iran-Contra scandal, and he had a diary a political diary that documented it. And Lawrence Walsh, who was the independent prosecutor, had subpoenaed that diary from George Herbert Walker Bush, President Bush. He wanted it. And President Bush at that point was like, he, re, he was like, you're not going to get it. And Walsh was going to court. Now, the, the context in which he was able to subpoena this diary was that he was in the process of prosecuting for actual crimes Casper Weinberger and, and five other people who were former officials in the Reagan administration. This all goes back to Reagan's deal with the Iranians. You hold the hostages so Jimmy Carter loses the election, and I'll sell you weapons. Walsh at the time said he had, quote, evidence of a conspiracy among the highest-ranking Reagan administration officials to lie to Congress and the American people. So Barr, who was then the attorney general, this is the guy Trump wants to make attorney general, Barr advised George Herbert Walker Bush, the president, to pardon Casper Weinberger and the other five people that Lawrence Walsh was investigating. It would be the equivalent of Trump right now pardoning Manafort and, and uh, Cohen and, you know, Papadopoulos and just the whole parade of them, right? And once there wasn't anybody left to prosecute, Lawrence Walsh could, couldn't continue the investigation. He didn't have a hook to hang it on. And he didn't have the evidence he needed to prosecute George H.W. Uh, Bush. I mean, this is amazing. And Trump now wants to make this guy attorney general? He's going before Congress next week for his uh, hearings. We'll see if uh, Noah Feldman's piece over at Bloomberg, senators ask William Barr about his pardon strategy you know, gets much attention paid to it. So there's that. And, you know, talk about a crisis of democracy. This is the kind of guy that Donald Trump has put in charge of the Social Security Administration. The acting associate commissioner at Social Security at their Office of Strategic and Digital Communications, a guy named Robert W. Patterson. Before he did this, he was a right-wing talk show host, a commentator. He worked for two anti-gay organizations, he advocated for conversion therapy, something that the American Psychological Association calls abuse. 
And uh, he, well, here's the, here's the most bizarre one. He, he was part of this, as being part of this radical anti-abortion group, he was also anti-contraception. This is a guy running Social Security now, or part of the, part of the senior management of Social Security now. He said that we should ban condoms because condom use deprives women of the remarkable chemicals in semen and that semen-exposed women perform better on cognitive tasks. These are the geniuses that Donald Trump has brought into our government. Can you? I mean, it's amazing. Anyhow, Scott in Alameda, California. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today? Hey, I wanted to put a bug in people's ear about Michael Cohen's testimony next month. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be in two weeks, right? February 7th? Yeah. There needs to be questions put to Michael Cohen about his relationship with Sean Hannity and the Fox News Network. Oh, yeah. Everybody's talking about questioning about Trump, but Hannity is the untapped goldmine here. And the channels, the fact that Bill Shine and Fox News seems to be running policy here, that would be a a no-brainer as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. And I don't think there's any kind of attorney-client privilege because Hannity said on air that Cohen did very little for him. It was nothing big. You know, he's kind of surrendering attorney-client privilege, I think. The other thing is, can I just say this? Mark Warner yesterday or the other night on Rachel Maddow's, I think, was scandalous. He admitted that that they knew nothing about the stuff that came out in the Manafort filing. That Uh, Manafort was sharing polling information with the Russians, you mean? Yes, they were absolutely clueless about it. This is our representative on the Intelligence Committee in the Senate. They had no clue about it. Why did they have no clue about it? Because I don't think Mark Warner's working hard. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's that. I think it's that A, Mueller's keeping his own confidence. He's keeping his mouth shut. And B, yeah, the you know, any of the Republicans who knew about this were not gonna tell a Democrat. I mean, you know, I, I think it's I think it's scandalous. Yeah. I really okay. Do. I, I get it. Your opinion is, is registered, Scott. I think that this this thing is about to explode. And that's why Trump is trying to position himself to have emergency powers. I mean, this may be a whole hell of a lot more Machiavellian than it just looks at first blush. This is the Tom Hartman program. Deb, watching us on Free Speech TV on Sling TV. That's how we watch Free Speech TV, too. And and Noka, Minnesota. Hey, Deb, what's up? What I really wanted to talk about was Trump's little rant that he had the other night. And the thing that keeps sticking in my mind is how he said these furloughed employees will adjust. Right. Uh, well, you know, Trump, if you look at his life throughout his entire life, I mean, he his father had put three million dollars into his trust fund when he was two years old. Whenever he has gotten into trouble, he's simply gone to daddy and gotten some more money. And he did that to the tune of what, four hundred and sixty or four hundred and eighty million dollars that he siphoned out of his father's accounts and things, apparently even ripping off his siblings. So his entire perspective on life is, you know, when when you have a problem, you go to daddy and you get more money. So he just figures all these federal you, workers can do the same. Or you declare, or you declare bankruptcy. Yeah, you're right. He did that five or six times. Yep. I, it, it just it just boggled my mind. They'll adjust. Yeah. These are real people that are being affected by this. And how do they adjust? I mean, what what do you take away? Do you take away food from your kids? Do you? 
not by gas? Do you, I, I mean, what, what is there to adjust? Yeah, the other thing that Trump doesn't understand, and I don't think that Kirsten Nielsen understands this, I don't think Mike Pence understands this, don't think that obviously Mitch McConnell understands this, is that that kind of economic situation that he's putting people into creates trauma in relationships. You're going to see six months, a year, year and a half down the road, you're going to see an explosion of divorces and child abuse among federal workers, among government employees. Because when you put these kinds of stresses into a marriage, very often the marriage doesn't survive. And, and, and I don't think he cares. I don't think, A, I don't think he understands it, but B, even if he did understand it, you know, at some kind of an intellectual level, I don't think he has any empathy for it. Deb, thanks a lot for the call. Well said. Fresh.com. Welcome back. Uh, William in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, William, what's on your mind today? I called about these lawyers who are out saying that the president can't be indicted and he can't be tried and he can't be convicted of crimes. Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, if I may read that, it's like 30 words in one sentence, sure. clearly rebuts that. It says, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treasury, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Right. It states that the president can be convicted of a crime. And you can't be convicted unless you're tried, and you can't be tried unless you're indicted. So, but it doesn't say or conviction. It says on C-SPAN when Alan Dershowitz was out there trumpeting uh, Mr. Trump and uh, claiming that the president can't be indicted. Right. But the indictment that's specified here is not an indictment by a court. It's an indictment by the House of Representatives. Uh, that's called impeachment. Well, no. This I is the impeachment really clause. It, it doesn't specifically say the indictment. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't say on impeachment for or conviction of. It says on impeachment for and conviction of. What that means is the the, the charges that are brought against the president, which has to originate in the House of Representatives, is called an impeachment. Bill Clinton was successfully impeached. Andrew Johnson was successfully impeached in the House of Representatives. It means that the majority of the House you know, 50% plus one vote, voted to impeach both Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson, and they did. Then it goes to the Senate for the trial. The trial is held in the Senate, and the Senate decides whether they're removed from office or not. And in both cases, they were not removed from office, neither Bill Clinton nor Andrew Johnson. And in the case of Andrew Johnson, I think it was just one vote. That, that is not specifying, as I'm reading this, uh, William, and maybe I'm missing something, it is not specifying that any other court can do that. And in fact, that would be, I would think, be found in Article 3, which defines the judiciary. And I don't, I don't recall having read anything in Article 3 about the ability of the federal judiciary to hold the president to account. I might have misinterpreted that, but that's what I thought it yeah. said, was he could be convicted. Right, and the conviction uh, happens and, and in the Senate. impeached based on that conviction. No, no, it's the other way around. It's, it's saying first he has to be impeached, which happens in the House, then he has to be convicted, which happens in the Senate, and then he's removed from office. But, you know, kudos to you for digging out the Constitution and reading it. And I wish more of us would do that. I, hell, I wish Donald Trump would do it. John in Central Willie Washington. Hey, John, what's up? I don't understand how the Republicans can maintain their distance from Trump. You know, they did it with George W. Bush. They did it with George Herbert Walker Bush and his war. None of the Republicans seem to ever be blamed for 
being complicit with the president making these bad decisions. Yeah. I don't know how they get off the hook. And, and the thing that kills me is that the Democrats seem to be unable to link the Republicans to their own president. Yeah, I think the media lets them off the hook, and I think you see that writ large on the Sunday shows where you have a majority of Republicans as guests and have for better, the better part of 15 or 20 years. In fact, I would say going back to Reagan. And they let the Republicans get away with lying through their teeth. And, and you know, any doubts about that, just watch Rick Santorum or Bill Kristol on any given show, any given day. John, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes, and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Zone.com, Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to bring up, you know, I think one of the unintended consequences of the shutdown and the next, like, major crisis that we're going to need to address is the looming brain drain um, from qualified employees leaving positions within the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're going to have a major problem retaining talented professionals. I mean, they're just yeah. not going to see the government as a stable source of Especially scientists. Yeah, they're oh, not, yeah, they're oh, not yeah. only under assault from the shutdown, but they're also under assault broadly, you know, just continuously. And oh, uh, there's open hostility towards yeah. all of their fundamental missions. Um, yeah, there, there was an article in Washington Post from uh, January 7th called Trump's government was a bleak workplace for many, and then it shut down. They interviewed, like, some uh, marine biologists at NOAA, you know, saying, like, you know, that morale between their colleagues are low, like, very low. Yeah. And day-to-day -day is just an, a frustrating workplace. And I think that once the smoke clears from all of this, they're going to have a real hard time finding qualified people, specialists, that need to be in these positions. Yeah. No, you're um, absolutely right, Marty. You're absolutely right. And and it's a it should concern us all. Marty, thank you for the call. Mona or Mana, excuse me, uh, in Corona, California. Correct my pronunciation if I got it wrong. Mona, M O yeah. I'm just listening in and I listen to your show every morning when I drive to work. I think it's just very interesting how so many people are still referencing like cable news like Fox or NBC or whatever the case may be. For me, I haven't had cable news in years. I'll, I'll never have cable news. I don't have cable home. Mm -hmm. um, I get my news from the Internet. Usually I get my news from social media or news apps that I've downloaded to my phone, and I browse and see what's going on. And I just think that, you know, there's a huge disconnect with, like, for someone to say it's like a collusion with Fox News, like, that sounds so foreign and distant to me. Well, here's the problem, um, Mona. It, Donald Trump watches Fox News at least three or four hours every single day. And he basically does what they tell him to do. 
and he freaks out when they don't like what he does. And he, I mean, you know, we have a long history of basically this presidency for two years being programmed by Fox News. And he brought Fox News's head of programming, Bill Shine, in to run the communications shop in the White House. Bill Shine is now Sarah Huckabee Sanders' boss. Bill Shine is Kelly Conway's boss. There's that. And then, of course, you know, the average age of a Fox News viewer is 71 years old. And that's Trump's base. I mean, you know, old white people. Forgive my interrupting. Okay, okay, fine. But, I mean, what does that mean for the rest of us? Because what, is, what does that leave us to do? Like, like, if he's just trying to reach out to old white people, like, who are yeah. over the age of 70, I mean, that's not going to last for too long. And there's a whole group of other people who need to be informed. And, like, I don't see any progressive news stations running any ads on their social media platforms that says something like, hey, these are five things that you need to know about what the government shutdown is doing to you, or yeah. this is what's happening to government employees. Like, there's no information being put out there on social media. And then the only people that, like, the, you know, obviously we have a whole situation with fake news, and there was a recent study that was um, broadcasted largely by TechCrunch that showed that the majority of people who shared fake headlines were actually baby boomers, and I think my dad is responsible for about 4% of that. Yeah, but, probably. <laughs> but here's the, here's the thing. That there's, also, oh, there's also, you know, Generation X, who I think gets forgotten a lot in these conversations. Like, you yeah. know, Generation X, I think in general, just keeps getting forgotten and what their role is and how they play in these sort of things. But I just, you know, people say the media is having a big impact on these things, but in, in which way for the rest of us? Yeah. Well, at the same time, to reach out to people like you, Mona, just Google Franklin Roosevelt, for example. And what you'll discover is that all these right-wing websites have been using a super, super sophisticated search engine optimization. So basically everything you get about FDR, who was the last president to challenge the oligarchs, is terrible news. Tom Hartman here with you. And Professor Richard Wolff is with us. He is the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. Our old buddy, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are the websites. So you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. So Elijah Cummings and Bernie Sanders are proposing legislation. They're trying to drop it in the Senate, although, you know, Mitch McConnell may stand in the way, that would uh, lower U.S. drug prices by requiring pharmaceutical companies to set their retail price at the average of their retail prices for the same identical drugs made by the same identical companies in, as I recall, six different foreign countries, Canada and several European countries. And there are presumably other ways to lower prices on, on big pharma. And then on top of that, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, says that he's got five, 600,000 people who are uninsured in the city where you live, uh, Dr. Wolf, and he's going to extend uh, free health care or Medicare, Medicaid for all, Medicare for all, something like that, to all of them. How does this work economically? And what are your thoughts on the policy wisdom, the economic wisdom of all this stuff? Well, let's start with Mayor de Blasio's activity here in New York. The real impetus behind this is not just the morality of a country as rich as ours providing basic medical insurance for everybody. You know that most industrial countries have been doing that for decades. Uh, it is a travesty of moral uh, dimensions. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to answer your question about economics. And the economics of what Mayor de Blasio is doing is very simple. 
if you do not provide, as we don't here in New York City, uh, medical insurance to roughly 600,000, at least that's the official estimate, 600,000 New Yorkers, here's what happens, and it's been documented a thousand times. People without insurance defer going to a doctor or seeing someone if something hurts or if something isn't appropriate. They delay, in the words of the medical profession, until it becomes acute. When it becomes acute, they then rush to the emergency room of whatever hospital is near them. When you add up the emergency visits, which are much, much more expensive than an earlier consultation with a medical specialist uh, would need to be, you end up discovering that it is cheaper in terms of the city's costs to make basic medical insurance available to those 600,000 people rather than uh, filling up the emergency room, creating those horrible stories of people with a real emergency who have to wait for hours on a gurney in a hallway because they can't get access. Plus, it costs so much more to maintain uh, the staff and the facilities at an emergency room. So, of course, logically, this applies all over the country. This is something that should be done at the federal national level, which is how every other industrial country does it. There actually is another alternative solution to this problem of people using the emergency rooms. Rand Paul has pointed this out on numerous occasions. His father, Ron Paul, was all over this and has been since the 80s. I think it was 84, 85 that Reagan signed a law into, into law that says that emergency rooms can't turn you away. Prior to that, before the mid-80s, when Reagan signed that law, people would show up at the emergency room and say, you know, I've, I've got X going on, you know, I have a broken arm or I've, I've got a lump in my breast or whatever, and the emergency room would say, if you don't have insurance, outside, you know, we're not going to, no doctor's going to see you, which is why they had to pass that law. So the libertarians are saying, just do away with that law. Just allow emergency rooms to kick people out again. Yes, but the reason that, that law was passed was that there were thousands of stories of people who either died or suffered, again, much worse trauma because when they arrived at the emergency room, they were told exactly what you just said. The next hospital either did the same thing or was two hours away by, cap by taxi or by car, which they couldn't always access. You had a level of dysfunction of medical care that forced even the conservative Reagan to pass that law. I mean, yes, you could go back, but then in a sense, we're going to reinvent those same stories, which will lead to the kind of outrage uh, that prompted even the conservatives to do that. I don't think New York City would never do that. And I think many other places in the country, you would see a level of, of, of anguish and of mass public exposure of this that wouldn't allow it to... I, I agree, but just for the record, this is still a position that is held by presumably the Koch brothers. They've long held this position and or yes, a position similar to it, and other libertarians. Right, and it's also... Sometimes it's phrased as medical care is somehow not a human right. right. It's not something we give one another as members of the human race or as members of the community. It is some sort of privilege. In other words, it's sort of a gentrification, if you like, of medical care. If you have the money, you get uh, the good quality. If you have little money, you get the bad quality. And if you have no money, well, then you just get sick and die. I mean, right. it, it, 
for me, it's always sort of astonishing if we ever get to the economics. Uh, we don't run our public parks that way. We don't run our security and, and military affairs like that. What in the world, or our public schools for that matter, what are we doing with the health, which is at least as important as all of those yeah, others? Yeah, no spot on. I've, I've been saying for years, you know, we all pay to fully fund our fire departments, because if our house is on fire, we want the fire department to come put out the fire. What about when our bodies are on fire, metaphorically, you know, cancer, things like that? Anyhow, but, but on, to, on to pharmaceuticals. On the pharmaceuticals, the economics are a little bit different. Because most other countries do not permit drug companies to gouge the population the way they're done here, uh, all of those countries in the list of six that, that are relevant to the bills that uh, Bernie and the others are promoting, they don't permit that. So the drug, the medical, uh, the costs of drugs in those countries are much, much lower. I mean, we're not talking close. We're talking a third, a quarter, a half of what they cost here. And that's not just true for Canada. Uh, people know about it in terms of Canada because Canada is close enough that Americans can literally go there, which they do uh, to get drugs less expensively. But if you go to France or Germany, which I do quite often, uh, you quickly discover exactly the same thing. So what the drug companies have done, uh, as best we can tell, is make their huge profits more in the United States, where they have been able to keep the government out either of regulating uh, the price of drugs directly or the alternative, which is have the government buy in bulk, because the government is the single buyer, you then have the monopsony, it's called in economics, the single buyer of the drugs. That can get a better deal. It's just bulk buying as it always is. Uh, you can get a better deal, and then the government turns around, doesn't make a profit, simply acts as the buyer on behalf of all of us, and we get the benefit of a lower price. This is what the VA does right now, isn't it? Yes, it's what the VA does. It's what various jurisdictions within the United States have done at various times in our history. And, and presumably what some of the big hospital groups do, too. Absolutely, and because it's the logic of the situation, the, the drug companies are making a bundle anyway. They are among, so people should know, drug companies, the big pharmaceuticals, are among the most profitable sectors of the American economy. That's why we spend roughly 17 to 18 percent of our GDP on health care, and no other country on this planet comes close to that. And our results, medical results, whether you measure it in terms of longevity or you measure it average days in the hospital per person or any of the other standard measures, we are, we're not the worst, but we're far from the best. We pay more than everybody else, but we fall in the middle somewhere in terms of medical outcomes. In any other industry, that would long ago have been enough for us to say, wait a minute, there's something wrong. We shouldn't be paying way more than everybody else and end up with a mediocre result compared to everybody else. Right. So the, the idea is uh, to do something. Now, I'm a little disappointed in Bernie and the others because this notion of using the average of, of four or five or six other countries' prices uh, and link the price in the United States to the government saying, well, it can't be above what the average is, you are, of course, setting up a reason 
for the drug companies to try to do in these other countries what they were able to do in this country. Uh, You know, you can see you've got to be a little bit careful here. If they use the kind of money that they have thrown around in this country... Uh, and maybe if there's a politically a desperate government, I'm thinking of Italy, for example, right now. I'm mm. thinking of Brexit and all the damage it's doing in, in the U.K. The arrival of pharmaceutical companies with a big bag of money to maybe get the laws to be adjusted. Here's my reaction. Why are we making uh, our drug prices dependent on whatever shenanigans go on in those five other countries? I understand that they're much che- the drugs are much cheaper there because that's the way this system has evolved. But I'd rather see a direct statement, this is how we're going to price drugs, this is how we're going so to... So should, should we do it the way that we do utilities to say basically, okay, your cost on drugs is X, we're going to guarantee you a profit profit of say 10% or 15% or 20% and so your price will be x plus 20% and that's it you can depend on having this nice reliable profit stream forever but you can't gouge us is that way is that the way you do it well it's one of the ways I but mean, then they start lying to you about their costs exactly i was <laughs> you beat me to it uh, you know the, the struggle that's why i'm a critic of this system the struggle never ends you come up with a, a plan like a commission or a plan like a government regulatory agency or even a plan about bulk buying and what you've then done is change the rules and now the same companies will go with their profits to try to figure out a way around it to try to moderate the so what if we broke up the company so that there was some actual competition? That might help. That might help. You might have to try to do that. But then again, the game in capitalism is when you have competition, the winner usually absorbs the loser. And then you get back to a few companies and you're back to square one. Right. We're black to play monopoly. Amazing. Dr. Richard Wolf, economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens. Uh, sir, thank you so much for dropping by today. Okie doke. I'll be looking forward to talk to you again soon. Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep. Make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for, geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to XChairTom, that's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Jerry in Rochester, Washington. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, every day I wake up early and go, geez, it's it's almost kind of exciting and scary at the same time. So I'm at the point where I think that if Trump goes where he's going and he declares a state of emergency and that spans his powers, 
I'm just wondering if he's going to use expanded powers to expand his powers. And thank yeah. you. Sure. Thank you, Jerry. I think that the uh, I think there's no doubt about it. And that's the thing that really concerns me and I think has concerned a lot of people about Trump declaring a state of emergency, is that if he declares a state of emergency, he can move money around because he gains extra power. And the old uh, saw, power given is never ceded. Uh, once somebody acquires power, they never give it up voluntarily. Of all people on earth, Donald Trump is not going to give it up voluntarily. So it's a, it's a real concern. RJ in Greenville, Michigan. Hey, RJ, thanks for listening to 1680 AM. What's up? Hey, the Emergency Powers Act. Right. Well, there's multiple ones, actually, it turns out. Right. Is there a clause that allows Trump to eliminate agencies altogether or or gut them, like Social Security or health care? Well, he can gut them anytime he wants. All he has to do is direct them to stop spending money. He can't eliminate them without an act of Congress. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, this is what this is what has already been done to the Department of Interior and the EPA. They're laying off scientists. They're, they're dialing back on the work that they're doing. Brian Pruitt and Ryan Zinke gutted those agencies. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Hey, thanks, Tom. Yeah. Thank you, RJ. Thanks for the call. Marilyn in Belvedere, Illinois. Hey, Marilyn, what's on your mind today? Oh, I just want to talk about the shutdown a minute. I, Go for it. Not crazy, but I think that the Democrats ought to go ahead and give him his money. And what they get for it, hear me out, is they get to take away his battle cry. They get the people back to work, and and the people are going to be very appreciative of that. And they're going to gain a lot of political capital from that. Then what they do is they just say, we tried to negotiate with the terrorists, but they wouldn't have it. And call Trump and the Republicans the terrorists that they are and say that they want you to look at the border because they're the ones who's really causing the terror. But Marilyn, I mean, one of the first lessons that I learned as a new parent back in the day was that the first time you give in to your kid as you're pushing them down, you know, in the cart down the grocery aisles and you walk by the cookies, the first time you give in to them, you are setting up that every single time you go to the supermarket, your kid is going to go off on you. The first time you feed your dog from the table with table scraps, you're doomed. You know, your dog is going to constantly have its head in your lap. This is not just human behavior. This is right across the whole animal spectrum. And why would Trump be any different? I I think that if they give in to Trump, then he's going to start demanding all kinds of wild stuff. Well, I just know that primaries are uh, 12 months away and to wipe out as many as the Republicans as you possibly can so we don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. I know people cannot buy groceries with principles. Isn't the predicate of your suggestion, Marilyn, that this is doing more harm to Democrats than to Republicans? I'm not sure that that's the case. I think it's coming to a tipping point where people are not going to care whose fault it is. They they just all want a they damn know solution. is they can't pay their rent and they can't buy their groceries. Yeah, yeah. And, and the simple reality is if one of two things were to happen, this would be resolved very quickly. Another one involves the Democrats. If Mitch McConnell was simply to allow the legislation that already passed the Senate unanimously on December 19th, if he was to allow that to come up to a vote, it would reopen the government and it would provide Trump with $1.6 billion for his border wall. It would, but is he going to do it? And then the other, well, he would do it if Fox News would start talking about how, and, and particularly Sean Hannity, who seems to be the Trump whisperer over there, start talking about, well, you know, $1.6 billion is a heck of a lot. That's a great start. Plus, you got a lot of money in other areas that you could reallocate, blah 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 and let him declare victory and go home. But I think he's loving this fight, Marilyn. I think that even if they said, okay, we'll give you this, he would say, no, now I want that. 
But we'll see. We'll see. Marilyn, thank you for the call. There's a special group of listeners and viewers of the Tom Hartman program who actually support our program. They, they help underwrite what we're doing through regular ongoing contributions at Patreon or on YouTube. And for those folks, we produce special video content that's not available anywhere else. The one that we just produced a few minutes ago is about how the Pentagon just failed a $21 trillion audit. Uh, it not, the audit wasn't $21 trillion. The amount of money missing is $21 trillion. It's enough to pay for health care for every American, you know, single-payer health care for like eight years. It's, I mean, it's, just, it's a mind-boggling amount of money. The Pentagon uh, apparently lost $6.5 trillion just in 2015. Where's the money going? We don't know. In fact, they redacted most of the numbers. Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. Uh, This is from the chapter, well, it starts with the chapter, A Life Edit, on page four. I was scared. I couldn't not be. Being scared is what anxiety is all about. The bouts are coming closer and closer. I was worried where I was heading. It seemed there was no upper limit to despair. I tried to distract myself out of it. However, I knew from past experience alcohol was off limits, so I did the thing that had helped before to climb out of a hole, the thing I forget to do in my day-to-day life. I was careful about what I ate. I did yoga. I tried to meditate. I lay on the floor and placed my hand on my stomach and inhaled deeply, in, out, in, out, and noticed the stuttery rhythm of my breath. But everything was difficult. Even choosing what to wear in the morning made me cry. It didn't matter that I had felt like this before. A sore throat doesn't become less sore simply because you've felt it before. I tried to read, but found it hard to concentrate. I listened to podcasts. I watched new Netflix shows. I went on social media. I tried to get on top of my work by replying to all my emails. I woke up and clasped my phone and prayed that whatever I could find there would take me out of myself. But, spoiler alert, it didn't work. I began to feel worse, and many of the distractions were doing nothing but driving me further to distraction. In T.S. Eliot's phrase from his four quartets, I was distracted from distraction by distraction. I would stare at an unanswered email with a feeling of dread and not be able to answer it. Then on Twitter, my go-to digital distraction of choice, I noticed my anxiety intensify. Even just passively scrolling my timeline felt like an exposure of a wound. I read news websites and other distraction, and my mind couldn't take it. The knowledge of so much suffering in the world didn't help put my pain in perspective. It just made me feel powerless and pathetic that my invisible woes were so paralyzing when there were so many visible woes in the world. My despair intensified, so I decided to do something. I disconnected. I didn't watch any music videos, even magazines I avoided. During my initial breakdown years before, the bright imagery of magazines always used to linger and clog my mind with feverish racing images as I tried to sleep. I left my phone downstairs when I went to bed. I tried to get outside more. My bedside table was cluttered with a chaos of wires and technology and books I wasn't really reading. So I tidied up and took them away too. In the house, I tried to lie in darkness as much as possible, the way you might deal with a migraine. I had always, since I was first suicidally ill in my 20s, understood that getting better involved a kind of life edit, a taking away. As the minimalist advocate Fumio Sasaki put it, 
There's a happiness in having less. In the early days of my first experience of panic, the only things I had taken away were booze and cigarettes and strong coffees. Now, though, years later, I realized that a more general overload was the problem, a life overload, and certainly a technology overload. The only real technology I interacted with during this present recovery, aside from the car and the cooker, were yoga videos on YouTube, which I watched with the brightness turned low. The anxiety didn't miraculously disappear, of course not. Unlike my smart smartphone, there is no slide to power off function for anxiety. But I stopped feeling worse. I plateaued. And after a few days, things began to calm. The familiar path of recovery arrived sooner rather than later. And abstaining from stimulants, not just alcohol and caffeine, but these other things, was part of the process. I began, in short, to feel free again. Most people know the modern world can have physical effects that despite advances, aspects of modern life are dangerous for our bodies. Car accidents, smoking, air pollution, a sofa-dwelling lifestyle, take-out pizza, radiation, that fourth glass of Merlot. Even being at a laptop can pose physical dangers. Sitting down all day, getting an RSI. Once I was even told by an optician that my eye infection and blocked tear ducts were caused by staring at the screen. We blink less, apparently, when working on a computer. So as physical health and mental health are intertwined, couldn't the same be said about the modern world and our mental states? Couldn't aspects of how we live in the modern world be responsible for how we feel in the modern world? Not just in terms of the stuff of modern life, but its values, too. The values that cause us to want more than we have, to worship, work above play, to compare the worst bits of ourselves with the best bits of other people, to feel like we always lack something. And as I grew better day by day, I began to have an idea about a book, this book right here. I've already written about my mental health and reasons to stay alive, but the question now was not why should I stay alive? The question this time was a broader one. How can we live in a mad world without ourselves going mad? As I began researching, I quickly found some attention-grabbing headlines for an attention-grabbing age. Of course, news is almost always designed to stress us out. If it was designed to keep us calm, it wouldn't be news, it would be yoga or a puppy. So there's an irony about news companies reporting on anxiety while also making us feel anxious. Anyway, here are some of the headlines. Stress and social media fuel mental health crisis among girls from The Guardian. Chronic loneliness is a modern day epidemic from Forbes. Facebook may make you miserable, says Facebook Sky News. Steep rise in self-harm among teenagers from the BBC. As I said, it's ironic that reading the news about how things are making us anxious and depressed actually can make us anxious. And that tells us as much as the headlines themselves. Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. If your New Year's resolutions include taking better care of yourself and being smarter with your finances, Harry's has you covered. Plus, you'll get a great shave in the bargain. Esquire magazine was so impressed, they awarded Harry's their 2018 Grooming Award. Harry's smooth, comfortable glide and close shave will have you hooked in no time. I won't shave with anything but Harry's. Harry's wants to help you start the new year off right. New customers get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and travel cover for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just use Tom, T-H-O-M, at Harry's. Com. Harry's replacement cartridges are just $2 each, and if you don't love your shave, you'll get a full refund from Harry's. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners to this program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM at Harry's. Join the millions who've already switched and get on over to harrys.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout to claim your offer. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's up? If the president should order a national emergency, do you think that he will reopen the government? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll, he'll say, uh, I'm declaring an emergency. I'm allocating money out of, uh, so far it looks like it'll come out of soldiers' housing funds for the wall. Therefore, I've solved the crisis, and I'm putting the country back to work. Okay, I disagree with you. I don't think he will ever reopen the government. Now, remember back in the day when uh, one of those senators went to talk to Richard Nixon about, brother, here we are, that magic moment? Yeah. Which senator do you think it'll be that'll go talk to Mr. Trump? Will it be Graham, Mitch McConnell? Who do you think it'll be? Because it may not be coming this year or this month, but it's coming. Yeah. Which one of those senators do you think it'll be to go talk to him? I honestly don't know, uh, Morris. And, you know, there aren't a lot of profiles of courage in the Senate. Barry Goldwater was the guy who went and talked to Nixon. And Barry Goldwater was a man of principle. You could disagree with his principles, but he was right up front about everything he stood for, and he did not compromise. You got that right. You know, yeah, including on the Civil Rights Act. I can't see him reopening the government because this Mueller thing is just too heavy. And yeah. the best way to deal with that is to distract all of us. And the best way to distract all of us is to keep this government shut down. No matter what happens, Professor, I don't see him reopening up this government because in his mind, it's suicide. That's one of the theories that Amanda Marcotte puts out over on Raw Story is, you know, she says that the only reason that she can come up with why Fox would push Trump to keep the government shut down is that it is pushing off the front pages and thus off Fox altogether. News of stuff like this, this bombshell that came out Tuesday that Manafort was apparently funneling campaign polling data, internal campaign polling data, to the Russians in a way that would allow them to micro-target. Okay, we're a little soft in this county in Ohio. We're a little soft in this county in Wisconsin. Let's uh, you know, spend another $5,000 on Facebook ads that'll target just this one county in Wisconsin. And Facebook gives you the ability to do that, that targeting and advertising at that level. And if that's the case, if that's going to be ultimately Mueller's indictment, that the, here is the technique, here is the strategy, here is the method that the Internet Research Bureau, this Russian organization, used to defeat Hillary Clinton on behalf of Donald Trump in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that's the case, then that's a horrible, horrible thing, right? A foreign government actually did successfully alter an election in the United States through the use of, of advertising with the collusion of the of that candidate's campaign. Now, Trump today said he didn't know anything about it. But I remember Trump saying he didn't know anything about paying off Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal either. And he lied through his teeth right to the reporters about that. He's an absolute tightwad. He would not, you know, and, and so, you know, I think that that's what's going on. Morris, thanks a lot for the call. Great points all. Mike in Lomita, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, a big day for KPFK. What's up, Mike? Well, my uh, speculation is only that, but over the years, my speculation has been more factual than Foxaganda, so here goes. Okay. I think the dumping of that information, allegedly inadvertent by Mr. Manafort's lawyers about his contacts sharing the polling data with a GRU asset, Konstantin uh, Kalimnik, yeah. Kalimnik, uh, I think that was pretty much the, you know, the last note to sound before the big dump comes out from the Mueller investigation. Mm. I said a couple of years ago that the Republicans would be cutting Trump loose once he had fulfilled his purposes to them and was no longer of any use, and I think that's about to happen, and I think that's why you suddenly have Chris Wallace 
acting like a reporter and have the actual facts turning up on Fox. Yeah. And that might be why Murdoch is meeting with Mitch McConnell right now. These are the two guys who really are running the country. Yeah, and there's no loss to them for losing trip. Uh, yeah. uh, Putin, after all, has gotten everything he wants by destroying the North Atlantic Alliance, humiliating the United States. Other countries are not want to do anything with us for years to come, I think, on the basis of what happened with Trump. And Murdoch's gotten what he wants. You know, Fox is, has, well, actually, Fox is now starting to slip in the ratings. MSNBC just beat Fox, you know, a couple of weeks ago for the very first time in like 15 years or something or a decade. And that might be the thing, that might be the point at which Murdoch is saying, hey, wait a minute, this is not helping me. This is not helping right. Fox News. This is not helping our ratings. We're going to change. Bottom line. Yeah. Bottom line things. And by the way, one of the things I'm grateful for, aside from uh, the Tom Harbin program and all the people that work there, is that no matter how many thousands of dollars in Kremlin money Paul Manafort spends on a suit, once he puts it on, he still looks like Paul Manafort. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the, the question that was raised uh, that uh, actually I think Rachel Maddow raised it last night, and I thought it was a really, really good question, is of all the Republican campaign operatives in the world, why would Donald Trump pick a guy who owed $90 million to a Russian oligarch who had worked for the Russians for several years, who had worked for a Russian-backed Yanukovych, I think was his name, Ukrainian president, helped him get elected. Why would Trump pick Manafort. Because when you're owned by the family, you hire from the family. Yeah, it seems. I, you know, I think that that's the, that's the only reasonable inference, Mike. Keep in mind, several of the guys who are on Trump's team are not just generic prosecutors. They're, a couple of them are experts on foreign espionage and foreign practices, and a couple of them are experts on money laundering. And that seems to be the intersection that Trump has spent the last two decades making his living laundering money for foreign oligarchs, including Russian oligarchs and Ukrainian oligarchs. And Paul Manafort was on the, on the payroll from the same people. Yep. And, and so uh, now it kind of all comes together. We'll just have to see, you know, wait to see if the media is going to accurately. Previous comment, our governor called out Trump's corruption and incompetence. Corruption, corruption and incompetence. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, and that's what it is. I mean, he is both incompetent and corrupt, and that should scare the hell out of us. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. He joins us today from the U.N. in New York. If you want to hear Luke break down one world news story every day, search Luke Vargas or Talk Media News wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Luke. So uh, hey, the U.S. is starting to pull out of Syria. Tell me about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway, and I will proceed any of my comments by saying I'm not judging this strategy. I'm just sort of reporting the sequence of events here. I mean, it, what's confusing is that we were told earlier from John Bolton and also from Mike Pompeo and other officials that, you know, the administration has abandoned any sort of hasty timeline that isn't tied to conditions on the ground. And what they said were the two conditions would a uh, promise to protect the Kurds coming from uh, Turkey, but a lasting defeat of ISIS would need to be achieved before we withdraw. Yeah, and on their first and point, learned, Erdogan comes out and says, no way, forget it. You're insulting me. Yeah, 
precisely right. And well, I guess to stay with the first point about the promise from the Turks, we had John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, doing an interview with Hugh Hewitt in which he says he, Mike Pompeo, and President Trump all understand that, quote, Turkey is committed not to harm the Kurds who fought with us versus ISIS, end quote. I mean, this to me reminds me of the language surrounding the official explanations about Khashoggi coming from the Saudi government. Hey, we believe it. We think we've gotten the assurance. They tell us they're not going to do it. We believe them. And and I think it's uh, pretty difficult to say any sort of assurance like that exists, given that you saw Turkey's defense minister saying a military offensive against various Kurdish groups in Syria is actually being drawn up as we speak. So then the other one is the lasting defeat of ISIS. We'll put that aside. I mean, I, I just don't know how you do more of a military defeat against ISIS as your troops are leaving. But what we learned is, indeed, military equipment has already started to leave the battle area. Not troops yet. In fact, it's for the short term, it looks like more troops are actually being brought into Syria in order to help, you know, guard facilities and stuff as equipment is taken out. But I think it all comes around to this sort of realization that the signals are getting crossed. Some military officials are saying, hey, we don't take cues from John Bolton. We got orders to withdraw and we're executing that because that's the last order we got. And it just makes me think this would not be happening if General Mattis were still chairing the Defense Department. I mean, yes. it's just hard to imagine some sort of bungled cross wires type of you know line of command of the sort we're seeing now. And then on the political side, I, I still just think it's not really viable to pretend that our leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Turks to try to get a promise about the Kurds is going to increase as our troops leave. We're going to be basically showing less and less of an ability to shape any of the future events in Syria, and yet still, maybe or perhaps increasingly urgently, asking them to give us political concessions. And so I, something's and, got to give here. And if I'm remembering correctly, Luke, this all started when noted libertarian Rand Paul went golfing mm -hmm. with Donald Trump and said, you know, you campaigned on being a non-interventionist and what are you doing in Syria? We shouldn't be there. And Trump said, okay. And he went back and uh, the next morning announced we're pulling out of Syria before he'd even talked to his generals. He'd just talked to Rand Paul. Am I remembering that right? I think the only other thing I would add to that timeline is around the same time, it may have even been before the Rand Paul bit, is there's a phone call with the Turkish president. Oh, that's right. Erdogan. That's right. That was the big one, actually. Once, but it yeah. was reported that Erdogan, like, really deftly sort of repeated back President Trump's campaign talking points that's to him right. in a way which just sort of caused him to change policy on the spot. So, again, not going to really get the kind of perfect exit that maybe some people think is, is possible. But yet I still think there's just a lot of evidence of confusion within the chain of command. And I think yeah. that's Thank great. you, Luke. This this Huawei story, um, A, is the Huawei, uh, the daughter of the founder, is she still in jail in Canada? Yeah, it's been since December 1st. So that's drawing on the news is that there's been an arrest by Polish authorities of a Polish, a prominent Polish cyber intelligence official and the Poland country director for Huawei, who have now been charged with spying for China. I think two bits are really interesting here. One is that the director at Huawei in Poland was a former embassy official. And this is a pattern we're seeing quite a bit, which is that Chinese foreign policy officials who have a really good sense of foreign countries are in many times circulated into the telecom industry, which I think is 
a suspicious thing. I mean, clearly revolving doors are not right. pretty commonplace in the United States, but why is it that, you know, a telecom company needs such uh, people who know the inside? Well, the actu- accusation government. against Huawei was that they were building basically backdoors, trapdoors, whatever they're called, into the, not just their phones, but into their switching equipment, their telecommunications equipment that phone companies use to run cell towers. So China could basically listen in on any conversation anywhere, anytime that they wanted. And an yeah. awful lot of the equipment used all over the world is manufactured manufactured by Huawei. Yeah, no, Huawei's goal is to roll out 5G across Europe and Africa and, and South America in many of these countries getting their gr- first really top, top-notch cell phone network conveniently built by them. I think the Poland case is particularly interesting. The Polish official who's arrested had previously worked to build a secure communication system for Poland's political leaders. And in the same year it's coming out, Huawei offered to the Polish government, free of charge, a Chinese telecom conference system. And so put it all together, are we seeing some sort of thing where the Chinese served up a technology with a backdoor on it, then you have an official within the Polish intelligence install that system for the use of Poland's leaders, and then, of course, the Chinese would probably be the beneficiaries of whatever they can listen to in those calls. Thus the spy in charge. to be the setup. Yeah, right. let's just find charge. And just say very briefly, let's watch Poland here. They are they've been mentioned a lot by the US recently as helping to contain Iran. Yeah. Now they're playing a bit part in this broader US China trade war, a country to watch. Got it. Okay, Luke Vargas, you can uh, ch- check out his podcast uh, just Google Luke Vargas or you know wherever you get your podcast or search for it. Talk Media News uh, chief foreign correspondent. Luke, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Take care. And you can follow Luke over on Twitter at the Courier. Yeah. James in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Well, I have a question for you, but I just want to make a couple comments real quick because I know we're almost out of time. I think they ought to take that Trump tape where he says that Schumer is not responsible for shutting down the government and replay it about every hour on all the major channels. A point about stability, it requires empathy, and empathy is learned behavior, and I don't want to get into that anymore. But what I really called you about is when did the U.S. allow non-U.S. citizens to own U.S. airwaves, i.e. Rupert Murdoch? I give it to you and I'll hand Well, he's a U.S. citizen now, A. And B, uh, Fox News is not over the air. It's on cable. But I get your point, and I think that there needs to be some real changes in our media landscape. I have articles up on Alternate, Truth, Dig, and Common Dreams right now, specifically about the media, the four reasons why the media won't tell you the truth about what's going on. You may find it useful, James. James, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you all for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day. Try to disconnect yourself a little, huh? It's like a healthy thing. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.